0: the most orthodox of all Marxist economists I have ever met. The reason why I'm still a Marxist is that I claim that this structure of belief, of displaced belief, you find it in what Marx described as commodity fetishism. That all really dialectical and intelligent human beings will have a sense for evil and some sympathy for the devil. Or they will be just a little stifled and horror. I think that's not wrong. Just a little simply for the devil won't hurt. Inside Critical Theory brings you this Diet Soap interview. So you're Ron and Ursula from News and Letters. And um, welcome to the, the channel, the, the Diet Soap channel it's called now, I guess, or the Doug Lane channel. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you because I'll just start by confessing that I have a connection news and letters um i was part of a splinter organization uh, i guess the, the way the splits went was it was news and letters then it was news and letters and the international marxist humanist organization and then it was news and letters the international marxist humanist organization and marxist humanist initiative and the marxist humanist initiative And i was part of that last split <clears throat> the marxist humanist initiative um Uh, I'm not sure if by saying that I am breaking a vow of silence or uh, uh, if if, uh, someone's going to show up in my backyard with an ice pick, but uh, I was (laughs) at one point a part of the Marxist-Humanist Initiative. Um, But I will not name names um, other than the obvious one, which was uh, Andrew Kleiman, who was uh, the head of the MHI. Um, So I guess my first question is, what is Marxist humanism, uh, so the audience will know, and uh, what did it split off from itself? That would be my first two questions. Um, well, since you were part of
1: a Marxist humanist initiative, um, you must have some inkling, but for your audience, mm-hmm. um, what I would say is we we're trying to figure out how to recreate what Marx did for 19th century, for the 21st century. How do we look at the movements in the world? All the misery that we're living through and how what has been missing for the past several hundred years that the revolutions haven't made it. So things are the same in the sense that capitalism is still the ruling ideology, but things are also different because we have gone through a number of revolutions Marx never saw and yet we haven't made it, we haven't gotten past capitalism. So the question for Marxist humanism is what's been missing? What do we do differently um, in as we are engaged in the movements of today
0: okay um and the i guess the, it, that's not unique to the marxist humanists i mean the frankfurt school philosophers had a similar question um many i think trot organizations would put the put it to themselves in the same way um, uh, just in general, after World War II especially, there was a sense of confusion and and uh, disappointment, I think, in the working class um, uh, across the Marxist left and the socialist left broadly. So um, I guess what I should ask about, and maybe Ron can take this or you can, Ursula, is um, how is the writings of Raya Duneiskaya leading your interpretation of what might be missing from the Marxist left.
2: Well, actually, what is uh, comes to light, even at this moment, in um, the world of Hegel and the world of Marx, is the contention over what's the continuity and discontinuity between Marx and Hegel. One of the things, uh, I, I had sent you a link to a, a essay we did or shula and i did a study of karen eng's book on hegel and uh and life and in there she kind of encapsulates a whole new tendency among hegel scholars to re- rediscover hegel's naturalism and it really brought to light this question that i think is uh sets marxist humanism apart which is what is the continuity and discontinuity between between hegel and marx she really goes in and proves that hegel's naturalism lit a fire under hegel scholars hegel's turn to life and it just created all this uh uh debate and she goes back in and shows how hegel's uh, turn to life was so critical to um uh Really, breaking totally with the that the uh, whole specter, the whole spectrum of of uh, post-Kantian um, idealism, and what it really brings to light is that Marx, the, you don't have to extrapolate how life, how the idea becomes life. Marx begins from that directly. And when you do that, Hegel's dialectic comes to life anew in a new way for our epic. And I think that goes back to the very birth of Marxist humanism and the uniqueness vis-a-vis Frankfurt School and and all these other tendencies.
0: Okay. <clears throat> so you said a lot there very well in a sh- very short amount of time. I'm concerned that not only my audience, but even I might not fully comprehend the depth of what you just said. So I'm going to start by asking you about Kantian idealism and, and see. And I'm going to try to describe it in my own words and see if you agree with me. The Kantian idealism emerges. Hold on. <clears throat> okay. Kantian's idealism is a, a, a kind of idealism because he posits um, that the world as it is in itself as something um, beyond the world of the, as it is for us, that that he makes a hard split between um, the world of of reason and uh, human understanding and cognition and the world as it is in itself. And, uh, he not only says that there's a distinction, but that the world as it is in itself is, by definition, unknowable, cannot make contact with the world of rationality and and understanding. So, this is an idealist move um, because it creates a world of understanding as the primary world that we have contact with, the world of our our inner world, the cognition, cognized world as apart from the world is of, of matter, the world of, of the unknowable stuff. <clears throat> and he's that, that's what, and that way he's an idealist without being like a, 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 a true immaterialist like Barkley or someone like that, who would say there is no such thing, but the world of understanding, he would say there is a world outside of understanding, but it is, Completely divorced from us, completely unknown to us, Hegel would say that the distinction between the inner world and the outer world is itself a way of understanding the outer world. That it is, and that the outer world, as Kant puts it, as divorced from us, cut off, completely untouchable, could only emerge through light, a life force of of cognition. Is that Do I have just am I describing what you're saying? Part of what
2: what she brings out is you know, the Karen A. What she what was new to me, in other words, I've been studying this for a long time, but what was Mm -hmm. uh, new to me is the, the way Hegel. If you if you remember how Hegel keeps developing right to the end to the absolute idea, he keeps saying, It's a matter of astonishment for me how. Kant discovered the real relationship of thought to sensuous experience. In other words, that that the Newtonian world that had so uh, mesmerized everybody, that no, it wasn't just something out there, it's pure categories of thought that brought out the truth of that world. So that Kant discovered the, that, that real relationship of thought to sensuous experience, and yet, and suddenly said it's only a relative relationship, that there's some kind of thing in itself that's pure abstraction beyond thought and beyond experience. Right. So what she says, yeah, all that's true. And then Hegel united it in the idea and that inner uh, idea of of, uh, human or being. But she says what Hegel takes from Kant is his his great contribution philosophy and says that unequivocally is that Kant recognized the difference between external and internal purposiveness and opened the way to this organic conception of the idea that's not in use in relation to something external but that is rather something that's part of an organic being that the inorganic world is its own inorganic world and it through which it realizes its own inner nature in every organic being. And there's something universal about all life in that respect, but there's something very specific about humans because they appropriate the external world, both through their life activity and through inseparable from cognition.
0: So Ursula, Ursula, I wanna put Ursula on now and say, okay, I, I enjoyed everything Ron just said. Can you translate that for someone who hasn't spent years and years studying um, uh, Hegel and, and Kant? And also, can you begin, I think it's going to take a little while, but can you can begin to take that uh, philosophical realization and begin to show how it's political and how it's practical today? <clears throat> That's a big ask. You're going to be talking for an hour. Go ahead. <laughs> I'll try to
1: make <laughs> okay. So what what Ron was talking about is the development from Kant through Hegel to Marx.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So if we come to Marx. What is distinctive in the way Marx recreated the Hegelian dialectic is he said what it means to be human is to make an object of one's life activity not just react to things but to actually think about them make them conscious and this development of a conscious process is part of what it means to be human and making our life activity free free life activity as opposed to just what comes naturally Um, is what distinguishes humans from all other life, at least that Marx knew. Mm -hmm. So what happens is uh, Marx was very right in pointing to the whole history of humanity being the um, actualization of that conception of what it means to be a free human. At every stage there is a barrier to this exercise of free activity and humans overcome it um, and come to a new stage. So that's that's something that is happening in life throughout human history. What would make a difference, the way that philosophy enters politics is this question of what was missing is um, the um, grasping that this process of development is what is missing in making it a truly a beginning of a truly human society we are always caught up in whatever is the what we consider concrete issue so i've worked with prisoners right Mm -hmm. issue is getting out of prison get overcoming um indefinite solitary confinement Um, getting health care or whatever. All those are concrete issues. But what the prisoners have discovered in the process of fighting for their concrete issue is that what really matters to them is the way in which they have changed their conception of themselves and the world and why they are there. So rather than saying, I don't belong in prison, it becomes no one should be going through this hell. It's not human. It's not acceptable to a definition of a human being to be treated the way prisoners are treated. And this change in the conception of who you are goes beyond the political demand to abolish indefinite solitary, to have some kind of reform that allows prisoners out of the food or whatever the issue is. And there's tons of issues, of course. But they not be limited by the particular issue and always see what is universal in what you are fighting.
0: Right. So the difference here is like if, if in terms of the prisoner, the prisoner, a given prisoner, um, might say, "Well, look, I'm innocent. I, you know, I, uh, uh, or the or the judgment was too harsh, or the conditions of this prison." Don't abide by the law, they don't they're they're inhumane. Um, but there gets to be a point, I guess you're saying where the prisoners are going to say there should be no such thing as prisons. there, there no one no one there why is there this category of imprisonment? Um, and <clears throat> you know, uh, just to take a very flat-footed, I think normal, everyday person's perspective on this, you would say, well, okay, no more prisons, but what do we do with people who commit heinous crimes? What do we do about uh, criminality? Um, and I guess uh, uh, someone who's in, yeah. So the prisoner who's pushing through would say, ah, if there's going to be no prisons, then there has to be no crime. Or, the, or you know, there has to be such a limited amount of what we consider to be crime that it can be dealt with differently. And then so, like, you know, you still the prisoner wouldn't say, well, even though I murdered a man, I don't belong here because there shouldn't be prisons. But uh, the prisoner would say, why did I murder a man? what were the conditions of my life that led me to murder a man? What choices did I make? What choices did the society make around me to to how I murdered a man? So you go, you kind of keep going deeper and deeper in the process of trying to change the categories, but you, but you're not going to end up, I don't think in a place where you go, ah, now I've solved everything. Right. (laughs) You're right. You're going to end up with a new mediation, some new, mediating force that will recon- create new categories which then themselves will have to be adjusted later possibly yes, right
1: absolutely um yeah. i just wanted to um to to add just a tiny bit since most of my work a great deal of my work with prisoners is with women prisoners i wanted mm-hmm. to add this element of sexual difference
0: what mm-hmm. happens
1: when a man murders girlfriend or wife it's considered a crime of passion he gets a slap of, on the wrist or if or like a year or two if a
0: woman who has been abused for- is that true because I'm, I'm going through a divorce and i didn't know that i could get away with murder is, are you telling me that Just for real Over <laughs> i'm i'm gonna write that down can i consult you later will you be a witness in my trial later on Well, <laughs> go ahead If a woman who had been abused
1: for years or sometimes decades decides to take a hand in um, defending herself or even more pointedly defending her daughter from being raped by her abusive husband, Um. she gets life in prison. That's part of what is murder that um, is part of the question and Mm. my regular response to what how do you deal with people who murder murderers are not born it's an indication of how broken the society is that people resort to those kinds of behaviors so it's yes it's a personal responsibility but it's also a social question why is Murder something that happens as often as it does in this society. I think Ron wanted to address it.
2: Yeah. Well, I like the the general question about how do you deal with political happenings. In other words, that Marx dealt with uh, a political struggle for a normal working day. But what Ashula is saying is when you see a political struggle, you see what's universal in it. So what he was singling out is not the, the result which actually saved capitalism but this question that he thought was greater than all the revolutions that came out of the out of the 18th century that in place of the all the pompous catalogs of rights and equal, equality and so forth we get the modest magna carta of a normal working day and the question when does my time become my own when does when does um the, the time for my de- human development become my own. And and I think that's the, the posture we have around politics. We were involved in, the, in a really um, a monumental movement that really shook up and was a, a, a turning point, which was overcoming the permanent solitary confinement, which was universally considered torture. And, in California, and basically a movement that emptied out the shoes, and you know we have
1: Security
2: a, the, you know the this permanent solitary confinement, and we have we had dialogues for years with people in, in the, in the prison, and what they did is they kept validating people as gang members with no evidence and no you know just if they made a if they had a, a book. You know, one person had a book uh, uh, on George Jackson and said, oh, that means you're a member of this gang. And, oh, you get another 10 years, you know, locked up in, in torture.
0: Because of a book?
2: They they came together and said, we want to be validated as human. And they united around, you know, all the different races to overcome this. And it was a big political legal thing. The polit- There was some progressives that were for it and and, uh, liberals were for it, but it became a a big movement. But what we were focusing on is that human content. We wanna be validated, we wanna be recognized as human. And that to us was a way of recreating Marx's method of how to deal with politics and the concrete political struggles that are going on.
0: Can I ask you guys a question here about the decisions that you made politically? uh, and, and don't take offense to this, but it's going to be a little pointed in a weird way. Um, <clears throat> it seems to me that the, that the Marxist aim has been to, to, to develop a political party or a, a political movement of the working class, the people in the factories, people maybe at home working, people in the fields, people generating commodities, making commodities that, that the, the capitalist order, capitalist system, and capitalists themselves rely on to turn from the organization of workers into a political force to the prison population seems to me to be a step away from revolutionary struggle into reformism why why would you not leave that to bourgeois liberal organizations trying to reform and humanize these institutions and instead aim yourself at, at that population so i know you probably heard this before too right but uh, but it's no
2: i think it's uh it's a good question because the, it's the it ter- turns on what's the uniqueness of marxist humanism and marx's multi-dimensional perspective on the reach for a human future in other words when Ursula was talking about how what, whatever barriers there are to becoming a free determiner of one's life activity, whether it's in prison or whether it's in the home and on the streets and you're a woman that wants to be fully recognized as human and freely determining and freely rec- recognized as a free determiner of her own life activity or Black Lives Matter or, uh, or the youth who are saying, look at." Greta Thunberg is is great. She said, all the political and economic uh, institutions have failed us. Only humanity hasn't failed us. That's what we have to appeal to. In other words, yes, the the most uh, antagonistic and profound and concrete opposition between labor that's alienated and a mere means to life and turns us into robots and runs our life by an algorithm and all that, that's in the workplace. And we certainly have those voices constantly. But those voices are appear in many other forms. And it's the the unifying humanist idea that Ashula began with that I think is so critical to um, really project in a way that we're. It, the, the outcome of all this isn't just overcoming commodity production, but is overcoming commodity production can only be done if it brings us back to what Marx calls transparent social life processes.
0: Okay, okay, yeah, go ahead, Ursula. Answer it slightly differently. Not that I. Okay. Yeah. You could be meaner to me. Go ahead. I probably deserve it. Yeah,
1: I'd to just say that what happens is capitalism, and Marx complained about it too. Capitalism makes us so dumb that we believe that labor is producing commodities. That's what's wrong with capitalism. Is that mm-hmm. Labor is a commodity, and it what the only thing that counts is this abstraction of socially necessary labor time. Mm -hmm. That's what counts as labor, where in fact, labor is creating our humanity, that's what labor is. And that's why when prisoners ask to be validated as uh, human, when women say we want to be recognized as fully human, that's not a different question than labor, that's enlarging our conception of what labor is so that we can finally overcome this stupidity that um, capitalism is foisting on us, that labor only happens when you're <clears throat> producing commodities and actually get back to labor as our life activity.
0: That's so when, but, but okay, just take up the, the, the question of like um, women's struggle for their humanness, right? The, historically, the way the feminist movement has struggled to for equality um, and f- for human uh, empowerment has been by pushing t- for the rights of women in terms of property and work. So women have struggled to gain access and control of their own capital or their own income, and, and they've struggled to have equal access to an equal pay at work. So the, the struggle for women to become human at the first stage is a struggle for work for women to become workers, right? Well, so, so, yeah, so, I mean, so to say that it's not different from the struggle for workers to overcome their position as workers to abol- self abolish the category of labor misses that historical fact that the women's movement's struggle has been the struggle to become labor and leave the realm of domestic servitude behind?
1: The way that I would answer this,
0: mm-hmm. that,
1: that the, um, it comes back to the question you asked before, what is the relationship between the politics and the philosophy? Right. When Marx was documenting the struggle for the normal working day, the workers were not asking to abolish commodity production, they we asking for a normal working day. right? Asking for a law that would allow them to earn a living wage and to have a, a life, right? right? Exactly the same process. And yet what Marx saw in that was that it was a more, mag- this question of when does my time begin, or become my own, was a greater question than all of the pompous declarations of the Magna Carta about freedom and liberty, fraternity.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it is. But the, what we've seen is that, that, um, those kinds of questions of like, uh, kind of trade union struggles, right? For, for, for better working conditions, better pay, um, they continue to go on and on. And they're always like, you, you, you win and you lose. You, you win and you lose. Uh, recently, like during the pandemic, right before the pandemic hit, uh, and, and during it, There was a struggle in the United States for an increase in minimum wage to a living wage, to a level of a living wage. And it lost politically. But the economy itself, for a short time, granted that minimum wage as an average increase, right? So now you have to pay more than $15 an hour just to get someone to show up for work. And yet, inflation... Has driven down the value of that wage, so, so you know the, the way that we ask the questions and the way that we, w- the, the categories that we accept as we struggle, um, you know, will limit our our chances of success. And I'm not saying that we have to start with, you know, oh, abolish wage labor as our first demand to the Democratic Party or something like that, right? But I am saying that it seems to me that the history so far since at least since world war ii probably longer has been the constant return to old struggles the return for the struggle for a a a living wage a return to the struggle for an eight hour day we we don't really have an eight hour day um anymore especially people who are working in the gig economy like i do i don't have an eight hour day i have you know my own schedule completely open, which means I work all the time. I'm never not working, <laughs> right? Um, you know, it's obviously I'm not comparing myself to a factory worker in in uh, you know India or China or wherever who's living in a sweatshop conditions, but but and but they also don't have an eight-hour day, right? They also don't have human conditions, so we're never quite free. We struggle for to change the system as <clears throat> to make it human. We changed to. We struggle to make this system human, and we fail again and again and again. So anyway, I'll, I'll let you respond to what and I'm that's saying.
1: Part of the process of learning when, yeah, uh, when I first started working with families of prisoners, for example, those who went on a hunger strike, their first instance was to feel completely overwhelmed by the prison bureaucracy and their only entry into it was to care for their loved one, whoever was in
0: prison. And Mm -hmm.
1: they they were very skeptical. Who is making you go on a hunger strike? Your health is already in jeopardy from the kind of mistreatment you suffer Mm -hmm. in prison. Um, So why are you endangering your health even more? And it was prisoners themselves who had to explain to their families, no one is making me do this. I want to make the statement. And even if I die, I want to make a statement that I am a human being, and I'm not going to be treated, and I'm not going to allow others to be treated this inhumanely. So the question of being human is deeper than any particular political demand. Mm -hmm. those families learn through the experience of their loved ones that that question is really animating their loved ones and and the support for the hunger strike was was uh, nationwide in some ways international because of that root of asking to be recognized to be human. So that yes every political attempt even if it wins, is temporary.
0: Um, mm.
1: But the, the question that it raises, and that's what Rosa Luxemburg is kind of um, um, staking her life on, is that after a revolution, after you win a demand, there is an intellectual sediment um, that you know that what you were fighting for was worth fighting for. Even if you lose, and especially if you win, We've changed the objective situation, and yet we haven't done enough. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> what happened to actually make it? That's what we started with, and that's what a movement from practice in whatever dimension it is keeps coming back to.
0: So, can you can we talk about Raya Dunayevskaya now, and 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 um, how she how she distinguished herself from uh, the from Trotsky? Say because I know she was his secretary, um, and by that I think that doesn't mean she did his typing, but she was the secretary of his organization, like, like, said, a position of authority there. So, how did um Raya uh come out of the Trotsky uh Trotskyist movement and and uh and how did she change Marxism in America?
2: Well, you know, the story about the Hitler Stalin pact. When Hitler and Stalin made a pact, and Trotsky kept saying we have to defend Russia as a worker state, even though it's degenerate, it was uh, a complete um, shock. I mean, I, th- I think she couldn't speak for a couple of days, and 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 had to com- completely break with him because when those two opposites became so identical and so much. Uh, 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 indication of a new objective situation, you, one had to reorganize oneself. and that's when she went back and actually created this Marxist humanist theory of state capitalism, which is very different than any other theory of state capitalism. but we've been reading Volume two of Capital, which is what she was using. And what what she saw was that the idea of all social capital, in the hands of a single entity is the is the ideal of capitalism it's something it drifts to automatically and that that's not the opposite the opposite is not having all capital concentrated in a single entity the absolute opposite is either the despotic plan of capital where congealed this total phantasmagoria of congealed labor time and things dominates the human being in the horror of the workhouse and in the, the modern or pre-modern factory or it's the plan of the freely associated labor that okay. yeah. social life processes transparent and you can begin again with Marx's dialectic of life.
0: So I've read the um, Johnson Forest Tendencies essay on uh, state capitalism. I, I think that's was it the Johnson Forest or the Forest Johnson? I, I always Johnson, do you, Johnson Forest. Forest. Yeah, the Johnson Forest tendency. That's a that's C.L.R. James, Raya Doyaskaya, and uh Briggs. What's the Grace Lee. Gracely Lee Briggs? Yeah, and um, uh, and I also read uh, C.L.R. James. I think it was Raya Doyaskaya and Cornelius Castriotis in the Facing Reality book. Um. They had another uh, little sect that they were working on under that title. Um, And um, I definitely agree with uh, their argument about the nature of the Soviet Union as state capitalist. And, you know, having, as I said at the beginning, having worked with Andrew Kleiman, I see that through the lens of a pretty, uh, maybe esoteric or eccentric economic, not economist, but economic perspective but the about the importance of the production of value uh, as, as under capitalism. And is also, if you are living in a society where value production and socially necessary labor time is still disciplining labor, you are in a capitalist society, regardless of whether or not it's privately owned capital or publicly owned capital. Um So, like, I uh, completely like am in line with that, and I can also see like just why the Stalin Hitler Pact would make Radoyevskaya want to not talk and (laughs) walk away and feel disgust. Um, uh, But uh, so, uh, what I I wonder about though is um, how that became associated with humanism as it's usually understood. Why? Why is that? The embrace of of really core concepts of Marx, um, an understanding of uh, the ca- state capitalist theory as CLR James and 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 company and and, and Raya and, and uh, Grace Lee Briggs was it Briggs or Boggs, Boggs. Briggs Boggs Grace Boggs I should know that name I'm I'm getting old I I'm fifty and now I'm forgetting things I I know you know um uh uh, uh but anyhow uh. How did that become associated with humanism, per se?
1: Okay, so let me take that question. Since I grew up <laughs> under what is called socialism, I grew up in Poland, but was socialist Poland. At the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, what was really obvious to anyone, didn't have to be a theoretician or any kind of intellectual, what was really obvious is that it was a state capitalist society. The state was the capitalist. The state decided on production. And a 10-year-old me coming back from school, if I saw a line at a store, I immediately stood in it because that meant some consumer goods were delivered to the store. And regardless Mm -hmm. of what it was, we we would need it. Uh, One time,
0: (laughs) uh, this is kind of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're, you know, you sound like a right winger, the knocking the st- the socialism, you know, oh, this is, yeah, but go ahead. I'm kidding you. I know I'm kidding. I'm joking, joking you. So, here
1: I am, 10 year old me coming back from <laughs> school. I see a line, I stand in it. And it turns out that what they delivered was of all things, toilet paper.
0: What you needed? Which right
1: everybody needs and with the pandemic right we all yeah. recognize that toilet paper really is a need yeah and, <laughs> and because I'm just coming back from school I don't have a um, package to carry individual rolls of toilet paper with me in Poland they don't come pre-packaged in a bundle they are just mm-hmm. sold as individual rolls so mm. Someone who was standing in line offered me a piece of rope, and I came home with a necklace of toilet paper.
0: <laughs> nice.
1: So that is nice. And what what happened in Poland and in Eastern European countries in general? What um, with Stalin's death, there was a questioning of what is socialism, and it was the intellectuals in Eastern Europe who discovered Marxist humanist essays and said that's the socialism we want, not what we have but this humanist vision of what a society is is what we're for. We're not opposed to communism we want this communism, Marxist communism Mm and that was the beginning of uncovering Humanist Marx, um, and that was very much coming from a challenge to established Marxism. I'm I'm putting Mm -hmm. in quotes because that was clearly a perversion of Marxism. So, the, the humanism of Marx comes very much from the movement itself, and that's that was part of Raya's beginnings, right? As soon as Stalin died, she felt the this lifted from her mind, and six weeks later, East German revolt erupted. Um, so that that was an, an internationally felt um, thaw that didn't come from Khrushchev's speech; that came from people acting on their own behalf.
0: You know, um, it's interesting. You're you're the, the definition of humanism that we've been th- talking about. The definition of what it is to be a human, the way we can, are conceiving it. Um, is, is has taken on different, different cadence or different kind of tone as the conversation has gone along. And at the beginning, the human was the uh, was kind of a power, a power of understanding, a power of self transformation, a, a, a responsibility for one's own for the categories of one's own life, the the, the turn away from. Uh, the idealism of Kant and the notion that there's a force outside, truly outside of us that directs our lives and, and that stands above us, right? That the self-responsibility of, of the living being is what defines it as a human being, yeah? But then as it's gone along, it's also taken on this, I think, a moral character. Uh, the, the the human is is the livable. The human is the humane. The human is um, what is is fair or just and 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 decent, and those I think those things are also like I would want to associate those things with humanity. I don't know if looking back at history, I can, in all honesty, say that the human are all these things as well. Um, but do you worry about a slide from the first? kind of understanding of the human into the second where when you take that when you make that second move then you aren't taking into account this self-responsibility but maybe unconsciously turning to i don't know religious norms to guide what your practices might be
2: if i could riff on that because yeah it's uh it's a really important discussion i i don't see it quite the same the the way the discussion developed, because when you begin with the idea of, of constant capital or this illusion dominating human beings reflected in the total social plan, it seems like something that's purely economic and we come back to the human being through this uh, opposition between development of means of production and means of consumption and the total social capital. But what it means in real life is that human beings are alienated in their life activity, in the production of their of their life in the workplace. And that that universal is where Marx starts. And this what what the, the whole thing opened up for Donaevskaya and reconnecting with Marx's um, position on, um, on what is the absolute opposite of capitalism was the question of alienated labor. And when you begin from alienated labor, it's absolute opposite is what we started from. And that's what Marx's foundational idea is that what human beings are are a species that can make an object out of their life activity and frame determine it. And what private property and capitalism and alienated labor does it alienates us from our human species essence. But Marx doesn't say that, for example, the way some people think that there was some pre-capitalist uh, uh, model for this. No, he said this this was the cause. Co- this was caused. It came out of something before capitalism. The alienation mm-hmm. is so deep, and that's when he goes into after he's talking about vulgar communism. We can't just get rid of um, private property and have collective property and have coll- uh, a collective uh, reorganization where workers o- uh, control the means of production. We have that's quite limiting if you don't go much deeper and he said look at the man-woman relationship this is the most fundamental relationship of all that's right where he says that and
0: that's very hetero heterosexist of him but go ahead (laughs) i'm sorry i'm just like this you just have to live with me being this way no nope get get your move the microphone up (laughs) making a
2: generalization there that that what's What's determinate is that yeah, there are physical differences. There are material limits to human development and there are physical differences between people, but what's determinative, what makes humans humans is not that, the, that we should ignore those differences or not acknowledge those differences. Marx was very empirical, but what do, we, what do humans make of those differences?
0: In other words, is
2: another human being needed as a human being? Is another human being needed as one who freely determines their life activity? And is that, is that become a mutual development? Now, Marx didn't know anything about homosexuality and trans and all these other things, but the principle is something universal and unchanging and applies to all these different particulars Mm -hmm. because you know what Marx is saying this universal never directly merges with any given stage of human development so it, that's the the real source of marx's concept of revolution and permanence and why it has to be multi-dimensional include black and women and youth and mm-hmm. peasantry especially you know that was the big uh, opposition trotsky kept saying peasantry will never be revolutionary and
0: blah 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 right hey okay so i have a question for you about state capitalism and then and then in in a minute or two i'm wondering if we could take a break and if you would be willing to do another like 40 minutes or so with me in a more informal way just to talk about politics of the day a little bit because i i have a public facing podcast and then a one for people who pay for it and that the informal one is the one for people who pay for it but um all right, so uh, my question about state capitalism, and this is like a thought experiment here. Okay, what would happen to capitalism if there truly was only one capital, capital? There's only, like, only one um, monopoly. There was one company and a state that ruled and ran the entire economy without the competition between different actors. What would be the force that dominates, you know, to discipline labor? How would things be set up for exchange? Um, what would there be? Would that just drive everything into a crisis, an economic crisis, if there was one monopoly power? Um, or would that be the way in which the or, workers had been would be organized to run a global communist society do and i guess this is like something that maybe would would have been de- debated in the 19th century between bernstein and, and kowski and rosa luxembourg but what do you what do you think about that
1: state capitalism is what marx foresaw, although he didn't call it that but he said as long as workers are paid at value as long as they're producing commodities it's capitalism. And mm-hmm. even if all capital is concentrated in the hands of one capitalist or one capitalist corporation, that doesn't change anything. And the actual experience of state capitalism shows that there arises a class of administrators who then mm-hmm. become what was very commonly called the red bourgeoisie.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They are the implementers of the plan. And the plan is to produce means of production which means toilet paper and bread and jeans and whatever else doesn't
0: get and widgets and computers and steel yeah yeah
1: consumer goods are not a priority because we have to mm-hmm. the west or whatever is mm-hmm. the current uh, excuse that the production needs to go into producing means of production to lower the socially necessary labor time. So state capitalism doesn't solve any problems and there is no automatic way to say if there is just one capitalist entity then workers take it over and then it becomes communist. Um, It's not a property relation and that's what the humanist essays make very clear that's what Marx is saying in those essays, that it's not that private property causes alienation, it's that alienation from your life activity gives rise to private property.
0: Mm The
1: other way around, so we really have to address the problem at the root and not look for shortcuts through abolishing private property and making everything owned in common it's the ownership that's the question not who owns
0: yeah okay um so let me ask you this when you when you guys found out that um that you were going to be talking to someone who used to be a a member of the splinter group of the splinter group uh did you did you have some fear and trepidation about that encounter no okay
1: no the ideas are what's important to us right i don't actually um harbor any animosity towards anyone everyone grows through mistakes they make Every mm-hmm. part of the truth and mm-hmm. whatever people do to try to educate themselves and and help the world is the effort we're all um, are striving to contribute and
0: right well I was just looking forward to returning to the source like I, I thought, oh, I've been out on the on the edges of humanism with the split of a split, and I'd like, oh, now this is this is Raya's own original organization, News and Letters, and um, uh, so I've b- been very pleased to talk to you guys, and I I feel like we just scratched the surface. I don't know how people. I also feel like we are playing a little bit of inside baseball because we've both been exposed to the ideas a bit, um, uh, but uh, so I'll have to have you guys back. To do it again, but and and the first time I'll have you back in is about five five ten minutes for round two uh, of this conversation. Does that sound good?
1: That sounds wonderful. Thank you.